Father, I just want to stop right here and just, um, Lord, just thank you and, and pray for uh, all, the, all the fathers that are in the room. And Lord, just, um, I pray, Lord, that this morning they will be encouraged. That they will be encouraged that uh, although, Lord, you call them to a, a high task in loving and leading their families, Lord, I pray they would be encouraged that, Lord, you supply them with everything they need to be able to do that. And so, Lord, I just pray that this morning they will feel appreciated and loved and cared for and honored. We're just thankful for them, Lord. Father, we just want to pray for our time together as we open up your word. Lord, I pray this morning, especially that as we read from your scriptures, that your spirit would illuminate our minds and our hearts to the truth that is contained in it. Lord, I'm aware this morning that what we're gonna be learning from your scriptures is something that the world hates. And because of that, Lord, it can be tempting for us to think about potentially disregarding this or trying to find a way around it. But Lord, I pray this morning specifically that you would convince our hearts and our minds that the Bible that we have, the Bible that we hold in our hands, is your inerrant and infallible word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago, we started a new sermon series called The Word of God, where we're studying the doctrine of the Word of God. And in one of the some of the questions that we're trying to answer in this series is, what is the Bible? Uh, how do I read the Bible? How should I approach the Bible? Can I even trust the Bible? And so two weeks ago when we started the series, we started it by talking about why we need the Bible. And, and we saw that, that God is our creator and he intentionally created us as his creation to need special revelation from him. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He created us to not be omniscient and all-knowing. So we rely upon him. We need him to reveal truth to us in answers to our biggest questions like, who am I? Uh, who is God? What is our purpose on this earth? And last week, we then talked about the posture that we should take to God's word. That as God's creation, we sit under God's word and we receive truth from it. We don't stand over God's word and, and decide what we want to accept as truth and what we don't want to accept as truth. And, and this morning, I want to talk about probably the most controversial thing that we believe about the Bible. But I also want to talk about, I think, what is the most important thing we believe about the Bible. I want to talk about a belief that we have about the Bible, and if we were to reject this certain belief, our faith would crumble in on itself. You know, it's kind of like democracy. If you want to form a democracy and govern a country in that way, there needs to be a core belief present in the people for it to work, right? That core belief is that all people, no matter their gender, their age, their race, their wealth, their skill set, whatever it is, all people are equal. 
If you don't have that core belief, democracy doesn't work because certain people will see themselves as more valuable than others and they will oppress those that they don't see as valuable and that's not democracy, that's tyranny. So democracy crumbles in on itself without this core belief that all are equal. And in the same way, if we don't have this belief about the Bible that we're going to talk about today, then Christianity, our faith, crumbles in on itself. And that belief is the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. And this morning, my goal is to show all of us that if the Bible is errant, if it has error in it, if the Bible is fallible, then our faith cannot stand. But before we open our text this morning, I want to make sure we're all operating on a clear definition of these terms, infallibility and inerrancy. These are two terms that do not show up in our Bible itself, but they're terms that we use to describe how the Bible explains itself. So we say that the Bible is infallible in its original manuscripts. And what this means is that it's impossible for the Bible to be wrong. Right? Infallibility means it cannot be wrong. And because the Bible is infallible, we believe that it is inerrant. All right? Meaning, inerrant meaning it's not wrong. So infallible means it cannot be wrong, and inerrant means it's not wrong. All right? And so since the Bible is infallible, it has to be inerrant. Right? There is a distinction there. All right? Something could be fallible, have the possibility of being wrong. And inerrant, it just happens to not be wrong, right? But something cannot be infallible, cannot be wrong, yet errant, all right? Does that make sense? And so we use the distinction of these terms because there's lots of writings out there about infallibility and errant. Are they the same thing? Are they not the same thing? And what we believe is the Bible is infallible, it cannot be wrong, and it's inerrant. It is not wrong, that every verse in the Bible is inerrant. It's without error. And we are in good company when it comes to believing in the, these things about the Bible. If you remember last week, we were studying 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. And one of the things that we learned is that when we study the scriptures, we need to do so with a good conscience. All right. And, and I quoted this last week, but I want to quote it again so we can remember. But Brian Chapel, a commentator on 1 Timothy 1 5 said this, in biblical culture, to have a good conscience meant the sense of one's moral actions as a part of a group. The good conscience sensed inner moral approval from God and God's people. And I bring this up again because the doctrine of the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture is something that the church, through history, has agreed to hold as a group. And so through church history, different councils have convened in order for several faithful followers of Jesus who have studied the Bible their entire lives to come together, to study, to pray, to debate and dialogue, to listen to the Holy Spirit and formulate these statements or these creeds that summarize what the Bible teaches. And they did this because this allowed the church to form doctrine Doctrines like the inerrancy of Scripture with a good conscience in such a way where we go, 
all of these people, when we study the scripture, we pray and we listen to the Holy Spirit, we, we believe and we agree that this is what the Bible says about itself. Right? This allows us today all right, to have some certainty about the doctrines that we hold because we're in good company. And so throughout history, we have different creeds that affirm this doctrine about the scripture. I just want to give you one because I could give you a lot and that would get really boring real fast. All right, but I'll just give you one. Back in 1978, a group of 200 evangelical leaders convened together to study and put together a creed on what we believe as the doctrine of scripture. This is referred to as the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. This statement was signed by those, if you care, people like R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, Francis Schaeffer. And this is the definition that they write about infallibility and inerrancy. Here's the first one. They say, we affirm that scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, meaning God inspired the writers to write what they wrote down, we believe it's infallible, so that far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all matters it addresses. So the Bible is infallible because it's written by God, inspired by God. Okay, and here's the second statement. We affirm that scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. Every verse of the Bible is without error. And I want to sh- what I want to do this morning is I want to show us why this is non-negotiable, okay? Now that we have our clear definitions down, I just want to show us why this is non-negotiable. And so quick, quick aside, um, I know that lots of questions about that remain. Uh, questions about how the Bible was compiled, how it was translated, uh, how we can trust that the Bible that we have in our hands is an accurate representation of the original manuscripts, And when we talk about inerrancy, what we mean is that we believe the original manuscripts are inerrant, are without error. And that our Bibles that you have in your hand are inerrant so as long as they accurately represent those original manuscripts, which we believe they do. So, there's a lot of questions with that you might have. We're going to devote an entire sermon to that. All right, so we're going to... Uh, hang with us in this series. It needs its own sermon. So we're going to answer all of those questions for you. But this morning, I want us to think about why. Why the Bible has to be infallible and why it has to be inerrant. All right? All right, we got our definitions. Go to John 17. We're going to hang out in John 17 together this morning. Uh, John 17 is one of my favorite chapters in scripture because the entire chapter is a prayer that Jesus prays to the Father hours before he's going to be arrested and eventually crucified and raised from the dead. And the reason why I love this prayer, because not only do we get a glimpse into the personality of Jesus, I think we just see some things and we kind of get a glimpse of his personality, but we also get so much theology from this prayer And I actually think we get a robust theology of the word of God in this prayer. All right, so we're not going to read the whole thing. It's a very long prayer, but we're going to look at verses 6 to 21. All right, 6 to 21. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do it in three different chunks. All right, so the first chunk uh, in this, we are going to see that Jesus prays about the mission that God the Father gives him as God the Son. In the second chunk, we're going to see 
that Jesus prays for the mission that Jesus, God the Son, gives his disciples. And in the third chunk, we're going to see that Jesus prays for the disciples of the disciples. Does that make sense? So we're going to see three different generations of discipleship in this prayer. God the Father sending God the Son, God the Son sending his disciples, those disciples sending their disciples. And what I want us to look at as we look through these generations is the role that God's word plays throughout. All right, so let's go. John 17, we'll read verses 6 to 8. Remember, this is a prayer that Jesus is praying to God the Father. And just quick FYI, I'm reading out of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, just because I like it better this morning. I normally read out of the ESV, but you'll see it on the screen behind me. Verses 6 to 8. John 17, 6 to 8. Jesus is praying. He says, I have revealed your name, God, Father, to the people you gave me from the world, these disciples. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything you have given is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Uh, In this first chunk of this prayer that we're reading, we see the reason why God the Father sent God the Son to come down and become a human being. God the Father wanted to communicate his word through his son, Jesus, to his creation. Uh, The book of Hebrews talks about this for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The whole book starts out with this. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, all right, the Old Testament, at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, And as Jesus is nearing the end of his life, he is praying to the Father and he is essentially telling the Father that his work is accomplished. All right, his work of communicating the word and then eventually his work of going to the cross and raising from the dead, that that's accomplished. Jesus has delivered God's word in these last days to his disciples. And these disciples now believe that Jesus is God himself because of the word that Jesus gives them. It says that, that they believe that I'm from you. And very soon after the disciples witness Jesus go to the cross and be resurrected from the dead, much of what Jesus has taught them is going to make sense. Because we're going to see the gospel play out before them. But in this text, we see that one of the reasons Jesus came was to bring us God's word. Just a quick, totally off-topic aside I just love this. I have to point it out. One of the reasons that I love John 17, again, I said, is we just get these glimpses, I think, into what Jesus really thinks about some things. If you look at the end of verse 6, he's talking about his disciples. I revealed your word to them. He says, they were yours. You gave them to me. Look, and they have kept your word. Just, just this private moment. 
Jesus is praying to God about his disciples. His disciples, they didn't always understand. They said boneheaded things. They messed up all the time. Jesus is always rebuking them. I mean, at one point he calls Peter Satan. I mean, they're just, they're kind of not, they're an imperfect bunch. And in this private moment with God the Father, what does Jesus say about them? They've kept your word. That's, guys, that's so encouraging. If you're a redeemed follower of Christ this morning, I want you to know that this is what Jesus says of you to his Father. Just be encouraged by that. But back to the word. Uh, so the Father sends the Son to the world with the word. Okay, communicate this to the disciples. Let's go to verses 9 to 19, the second chunk. It says this, Jesus is praying. I pray for them, the disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who have, those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name and you, that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, talking about Judas, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. All right, there's a lot going on in that prayer, and there's no way we can hit every single thing that Jesus is talking about here. But I want you to look at verse 18 one more time with me. Jesus says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. We see a, a passing on here of the baton from Jesus to his disciples when it comes to delivering to the world the word of God. Jesus is leaving and going back to be with the Father. He's going to go to the cross, be raised from the dead, and then ascend to be with the Father. But he leaves his disciples here with the word of God, which will ultimately be written down under the inspiration of the Spirit and canonized into Scripture, into the Bible that we have today. And the word of God is sufficient because Jesus very clearly says in verse 17, look at it, your word is truth. If you look at that in verse 17, your word is truth. I want you to notice the construction of that sentence. If you see it on the screen, right? The English here matches what the Greek says. It does not say your word is true, using an adjective. It says your word is truth, using a noun. The word of God is not true because it meets some sort of external standard of truth. No, the word of God is truth because it is truth. It is infallible because the word came straight from God. It is the standard of truth. 
Therefore, it's inerrant. And Jesus is leaving his disciples in this world with it so that they may write it down and preach it to the world. And it's so important here in John 17 to see the progression from God the Father to God the Son and then God the Son to the disciples. All right, It's infallibility. God's word is being communicated and passed along. But in this text, we also see why the word that Jesus is leaving the disciples must be inerrant. It must be truth. Because the inerrant word of God is what makes the ministry of the disciples and the church, including Grace Hill Church, effective. It does this because the inerrant word of God does three things according to this text. The inerrant word of God unifies us. The inerrant word of God identifies us. And the inerrant word of God sanctifies us. We see those three things in the text, and I want us to break down those three. All right, so here's the first one. The inerrant word of God, it unifies us. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. God the Son, Jesus, refers to the unity, the oneness that he has with God the Father, and he prays that his disciples would have the same unity. And the only way that we as fallen human beings, who are not members of the Trinity, by the way, can have the same kind of unity with one another that God the Father has with God the Son is through the word of God. Fallible, errant human beings can be united together through their belief in the infallible and inerrant word of God. So we can have unity when it comes to what we believe about God and the gospel and how to be saved and what is good and what is right and what is true. Because we are all united in looking to the inerrant word of God to get the answers to those questions. Those answers are not anchored in the fickleness of mankind, but in the constancy of God's word. And therefore, the church can be united at all times, in all places, and in all cultures because we have God's word. But when we begin to question the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible, we remove the very foundation upon which our unity is built. It all comes down to that simple phrase in verse 17. Your word is truth. I have not judged it to be true. No, it is truth. Because when I say your word is truth, I'm saying that is the standard of what is true and what is not true. I now have a foundation upon which unity in the church can be built because I have removed the ability of myself or any other person to make judgments about the Bible. I've removed the variable of human fallibility from the foundation upon which our faith and our unity is built. Because of the inerrancy of Scripture, our unity is built on a foundation that will never change, it will not shake. We might decide to jump off of it, but that foundation is sure. But if we remove inerrancy, what happens to the foundation? All of a sudden, God's word is now subject to the judgment of fallible people. 
How will unity be built when one person can determine what is true and not true and the other person, I guess they have just as much right to determine what is true and not true too. So now we're just going to debate, you know. The church is like, okay, hold on, hold on, world, world, hold on. We need to figure out what we believe. The foundation of unity will always change. It will always shift. You know, as modern-day Christian liberalism says, the word of God evolves along with the culture. And if they were actually honest with themselves, what they mean is the word of God evolves along with Western culture. If you remove inerrancy, you remove the unity of the church. Second, the inerrant word of God identifies us. Uh, Verses 14 to 16 in the text. Jesus says, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is basically saying about his disciples, the world hates them because they believe your word. But I have a mission for them in the world, so don't take them out. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. I'm praying you leave them in the world with a word to communicate. Just protect them from the evil one. That's what Jesus prays. You know, it's interesting that this is what Jesus prays. Protect them from the evil one, from Satan. Because they possess the word of God. Can we think back to an example in our Bible of someone who has been given the word of God and Satan goes straight after them to try to convince them that it's not true? We talked about it two weeks ago. Genesis chapters one to three. God gave his word to Adam and Eve. And immediately the serpent comes. And what's the first thing the serpent does? Did God really, really say that you couldn't eat of that tree? And then eventually Satan lies to them straight up. No, 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 no. What God told you is wrong. It's errant. Don't trust it. God knows that if you were to eat of that tree, that it would actually be good for you. See, Satan schemes to convince those, convince those who have access to the word of God that it is errant. What Satan wants the church to do is reject inerrancy. It's exactly his strategy. And so Jesus prays that God would protect his disciples because they have God's word. They are in the world. He does not want them to leave the world. So leave them there, but protect them from Satan. And it is the word of God that identifies us as the disciples of Jesus. It's what distinguishes us from the world. Listen, the world is going to make assertions of what is good and what is true. And the word of God is not always going to agree with that. And the world will hate us for it. I don't think I have to convince us that that's a reality. It's exactly what Jesus tells us. And it's exactly this tension that the world hates this that causes many to question the inerrancy of the Bible. It's too closed-minded. It's too controversial. It's too politically incorrect. Too vulnerable to social media attack. Doesn't give me the freedom to decide what I like and I don't like, what I think is true and what I don't think is true. It takes control out of my hands. And to fully submit myself to the scriptures is to be identified as a zealot in this world. 
See, when you remove inerrancy, you start the slippery slope of your life becoming indistinguishable from the world. You become the judge of what is true and good and what is acceptable in the Bible. And the attacks from the enemy and the hatred of the world will convince you to find more and more of the Bible as errant. When we drop inerrancy, two things happen. Satan wins and the church disappears. Number three, the inerrant word of God sanctifies us. It sanctifies us. Verses 17 to 19. Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. To be sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart. And this says that it is God's word that sanctifies us, it, that it grows us in holiness. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we also see this. All scripture is inspired by God, infallible, because it's inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? The word of God transforms the way we live our lives. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this topic because I'm actually going to devote an entire sermon to this passage in 2 Timothy 3 on how the word of God sanctifies us and trains us for righteousness. So we'll definitely dive deep into that. But I do want to talk about how the inerrancy of God's word is essential to the word sanctifying us. Verse 17 is very clear that the reason that the word of God sanctifies us because it is truth. It is truth that sanctifies us. God's word sanctifies us because it's truth, right? Falsehoods, fairy tales, legends, they don't sanctify us. So from the outset, we can already ascertain that if the word of God is errant, if it is fallible, then it cannot sanctify us. However, why must, why, why is it that the word of God must be truth for it to sanctify us? Well, it is God's word that reveals to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's God's word that helps us to see that what sin is and that we actually have committed sin before God. It's God's word that tells us that God sent his son Jesus not only to reveal the gospel in his word, but to execute the gospel through offering his life on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and being raised from the dead so we could have new life. It is God's word that tells us that the way in which our sins are forgiven is putting our faith on, upon Jesus on the cross. Not any works. And finally, it's God's word that instructs us on how to live for God's glory and for our joy. It is the word of, if the word of God is errant, then which parts do I believe? Which parts do I live according to? Which parts do I decide to reject or are not important? Which commands do I follow? Which commands do I not follow? See, if you go to Ikea to buy furniture, you need the instructions to tell you to how to build whatever you bought, right? You need those instructions to be inerrant. They cannot be wrong. If those instructions are errant, 
you will not be able to build your furniture. If those instructions are inerrant, then you'll be able to build your furniture and use it for whatever purpose that you bought it for. And that's a simplistic example, but the value is the same. If God created us to need special revelation for him, to know who we are and who he is and how we should live our lives, then we need that special revelation for him to be inerrant. Because if there is error, then we'll just be led astray. And when we dismiss inerrancy, we become like the fool who thinks he can figure out Ikea furniture without the instructions. And your life and your faith will crumble under you as fast as that chair will. See, it is the sanctified Christian who believes God's word, submits his or her life to its infallibility, and allows their life to be transformed by it. They trust the word of God more than they trust themselves. They trust the word of God more than the culture and pundits. They trust God's word more than their desires. They truly believe that their joy is found in obedience to the infallible and inerrant word of God. And they accept that that very belief will cause the world to hate them. And after Jesus prayed about his mission to take the word to his disciples, and then he prayed for his disciples and their mission to take the word to the world. If we continue in our passage briefly here, Jesus then prays for us. Jesus prays for all of those who will believe in him through the word passed along by the disciples. Through their faithful ministry in the early church and their Faithfulness to write the word of God down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, into our Bible today. Look at verses 20 and 21. I pray not only for these, for these disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. The progression continues. God the Father Sends God the Son with the word. God the Son gives the word to the disciples. The disciples go to more disciples, to us. And we continue the progression. Make more disciples. Communicate the inerrant, infallible word of God that's been given to us. And Jesus prays that we would be unified, that we would be sanctified through the timeless, infallible, and inerrant word of God. But don't let verse 21 go by too quickly. There's another implication of holding to the inerrancy of Scripture. And that is so that the world will believe. Not only do we lose our unity and sanctification when we dismiss inerrancy, but we lose our mission. Verse 21. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Great, so this is why we as a church will be unapologetically committed to inerrancy. This is an unpopular belief to have these days. Jesus' prophecy here in chapter 17 is ringing true. The world hates inerrancy, and many churches and many whole denominations hate it. It's considered to be too radical, too archaic, too closed-minded, too unenlightened. But I'm convinced by John 17 this morning that the cost is simply too high to dismiss inerrancy. You remove inerrancy, then the church will be distracted over arguing with itself over what is true and not true. If you remove inerrancy, then the church will fold under the persecution of the world and the attacks of the enemy. 
and will become indistinguishable from the world. You remove inerrancy, you remove the church's sanctity. You remove inerrancy, we reject the very mission that God gives us to communicate his word and make disciples. If you remove inerrancy, our faith doesn't stand. Let me pray for us and let me pray that we as a church will faithfully hold to this doctrine. Father, I pray this morning for our church, for Grace Hill Church. Lord, I pray that although Satan will do everything he can to try and get us to reject this doctrine, although the world will cry foul, although the world will try to persecute, although the world will hate it, I pray, Lord, that in the midst of all of that, we would not waver from believing that your word is truth. That everything we read in your word, we can trust. That everything we read in your word is for our joy. Lord, we live in a time now, Father, where, where many are deciding to walk away from this. I don't know the motivation, Lord. Maybe it's so that they won't get attacked. Maybe the motivation is so their churches will grow faster. Maybe the motivation is because, Lord, sometimes we just don't want to really and truly trust you. We'd rather trust our guts and we'd rather trust our minds and our hearts over trusting you. But, Lord, I pray this morning for every person in this room that, that Father, we would, we would see that you are our good Father who loves us and you created us to, to need you and to need your word. And Lord, I pray that as your children, we would have that childlike trust and faith in your word. Maybe sometimes we can't explain it all. Maybe sometimes we don't understand everything. But Lord, I pray that all of us would find comfort and solace and stability and security in the fact that you have given us your word and we can fully trust it. It is infallible, it cannot be wrong, and it is inerrant, it is not wrong. And Lord, I pray that that would be a comfort to our church as we seek to be faithful to the mission that you have given us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.